Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Hey, Sherry, do you remember back when I was drinking? Um, Yeah, I do. Do you remember... um, like how a lot of times I would blame you for stuff that happened that was clearly the result of alcohol, but I would blame you anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That wasn't very cool. No, you weren't very cool. Um, I feel like uh, what would be even more uncool is if you had been blamed for stuff that was clearly the, the result of the alcohol, the role of the alcohol or the alcoholic, you know, me just being an ass. And then we had uh, sought professional help and we were sitting there with the professional and you're, you're thinking you're finally getting it vindicated. And then the professional starts telling you about your role in the whole thing and the things that are your fault. That would suck. Wouldn't it? That would suck. Especially since I heard it from you a lot of the time. Yeah. You hear from me how it's your fault. And then you go to see the professional. You think, aha, I'm going to be relieved of this guilt. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly something that was experienced by our guest today. Our good friend, Don, welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Don, great to have you. Good to be here. So Don, let's start, let's jump right in and start right there because I think this story is something that a lot of our listeners are really going to relate to. And when you shared this story with Sherry and I, it's what made me say, oh, we've got to have Don on the podcast. The first time you met with your husband's counselor when he was, I think when he was starting rehab, right? Or early in his rehab? Like three days in, yeah. Tell us what happened. I initially had gotten a phone call from her because he, of course, signed the paper for me to, her to be able to tell me anything. Um, and and our conversation, it, it went kind of like, well, he said he's coming home afterwards. And then I disagreed and said, no, he's not coming home afterwards. And there was like this, this tension of what he was telling her versus what I was telling her. And she started asking me questions like, well, what prompted this? And, you know, at, which led me down that whole, yes, I searched for liquor. Yes, I did all these things. So she's like, let's meet and then let's have a conversation with your husband. So I drove out there. Yeah. And to be clear, when you say he's coming home afterwards or he's not coming home, you you were thinking he needs to go to sober living after. Yes. Um, he just needs to do something other than come back to the house because 30 days is not going to be enough for you. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's gotcha. where I, in my head from the get go, 30 days was not enough. Gotcha. I looked at it as we were getting divorced. Okay. That's how okay. my view was. So I really wasn't, a, I didn't go into this rehab thing as a willful participant. <laughs> I, I was kind of, I wasn't happy about it. I knew he needed it, wasn't happy about it. So I show up there and very nice woman, you know, seemed very nice. And she hands me this pamphlet for CODA. No words were, no words had been said in person. She hands me this pamphlet. She goes, you're going to need this. And I just kind of sat it down and we kind of went through you know, like what I had done, why I kicked him out. And she's like, you definitely need Coda. 
And then the next, you know, like, were you searching for liquor? Well, yeah, I was. You definitely need CODA. You definitely need CODA. So this continued for 15 minutes. To when Len walked in the door, I wanted to just like punch him and walk out. She had had me so angry because in my head, and maybe, you know, in my head, he caused this. I'm here and now I'm being told that I am broken because he's an alcoholic yeah. and, and possibly has mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. When you're reacting in a very natural way, um, searching for alcohol when your husband's an alcoholic, um, man, I, I, I can't imagine anything more natural than that. You know, so, so we went through these conversations like, did you search for, why, why did you help him get in here? Because I had to help him. He was in a really bad space and I had to help him fill out the paperwork. I had to provide financials. I had to do all those things. Otherwise they were turning him away. And I'm like, okay, no, you're not turning him away. You're, you're taking him. Um, but, but by me, by me helping him with that, by me insisting that my kids be part of the process, I'm codependent. And I'm like, okay, sure. So the next week was a family meeting. My, my younger son did not, um, he, he refused to participate. He was angry. He was, you know, he's 20 years old. He's angry. He was so relieved when I kicked him out. He would, he would not participate. He's like, I got nothing to say. So my older son and I go there and my younger son was on his way to visit his girlfriend in Wisconsin. He hadn't had his, he got his driver's license late. So he hadn't had it that long. And I was checking on the phone where he was. Yo, it's January. He's driving four hours away and she's chanting Coda, Coda, Coda behind my back. While you're checking on your son. Well, I'm checking to see where my 20 year old is. My older son felt the need to like protect me at that moment. And I don't even know if he knew what CODA meant, but he's like, she does that. She likes to know we're okay and we're safe. And she like spun her head around and was like, you need to go to a codependent meeting. Hmm. Like you are messed up. And I, so I, I became more unwilling to participate <laughs> because I was really being told I was, I had a problem and in my problem, in my head, my problem caused him to become an alcoholic. Yeah, and, and logically, I know that's not true, but in this place I was at the time, that's how I took it. Yeah, that that's so frustrating. I know when you first shared this story with us, you said, the emotions that you felt, you were appalled, you were angry, and you were super annoyed. Now, there, there's no doubt in, I think, any of our minds that the loved ones of the alcoholic suffer just as much, if not more, than the alcoholics themselves, and that there is a ton of recovery work that is required. It's not an easy slog, but the, the blame, you know, shifting the blame and the shame to using the word codependent as a weapon. I hate that word. I hate that word for a number of reasons. First one is, I didn't know what the heck it means. It's not very self-explanatory. So when I first started hearing codependent, I'm like, uh, I got to figure this out. And then 
once you learn what it means, it then when it's used as a cudgel just to 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 beat on people, um, I I just I hate hearing stories like that. Did you when she first started saying coda and calling you codependent? Did you even know what that meant? So I kind of I did because of my past, because of my upbringing, I did. Um, kind of like the same way I used to accuse my mother of being an enabler. You know, it, it felt the same, which, which I recently apologized to her for that. Um, because I'm like, it's not fair to be called names when you're doing the best you can do what, what you know how to do. Um, so I did know what she was talking about and, and, so I went home and I studied and, you know, and I took the little quiz, you know, there's always a quiz and yeah, sure. I can label myself codependent, but I can also lab label myself with several terminal illnesses if I go to WebMD or I could label myself to have the highest IQ in the world if I answer the right questions. I mean, so in my research, I was like, there was a meeting about five minutes from my house. There was like a codependent meeting. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not gonna do that. Let me try an Al-Anon meeting. So I tried an Al-Anon meeting. <sighs> Hated every second of it, every single second of it. What I, what I needed, and I found it a year later, but what I needed at that moment was, was this. I needed someone to talk to. I needed someone to bounce ideas off of. I needed someone to say, yeah, I, I did that, or this book helped, or have you listened to this podcast? I needed this, a group like this. So thankfully we, we found it. We often find people, you know, obviously there are lots of millions, literally, of people for whom Al-Anon is, is a real great benefit and a good fit. But we also do run into lots of people that share that sentiment that they tried Al-Anon and it just didn't work. What about it didn't work for you? Like, I think it was sitting there and not, I didn't feel like I could be honest. I didn't feel like any of my feelings were validated. I didn't feel like I was getting any information, you know, besides the welcome packet that they hand you. I know all this, the, the, I know all this stuff. You know, it's like, I think I, I just needed, I needed a friend, you know? And while I, I have a friend and we were bouncing things back and forth, she did never experience this. She experienced a loss, her husband died, but she didn't experience this. And so she, you know, she couldn't really help me. I needed, Someone else who experienced this that wasn't my mother. I, I feel like that's the trap of growth. You know, all of these 12-step programs, many of these 12-step programs, certainly the ones that we know by name, like Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, they have expanded nationwide, worldwide, really. And that's out of necessity, and that's wonderful. But they've expanded to the point where you've got people with in the AA case, you've got people with six months of sobriety that are chairing meetings. And so, and I, and I assume there's some similarity on the Al-Anon side. And because you don't have professional facilitators or people with a lot of experience facilitating, I feel like 
what what the rule is in the in the rooms often, especially from what we understand about Al-Anon, you wait your turn to talk, and then you get your four minutes or five minutes to talk, and then you sit quietly and you wait and listen to everybody else. And there's no feedback. There's I think very specifically no crosstalk. And that I think is done because you don't have a professional facilitator in the room that could prevent it from going off the rails. Right. And and that's I, I don't know how to fix that for Alan. They've never asked me. They don't care about my opinion, right? But but I can't think of a solution because it's a free program offered nationwide. You're just not going to have professional facilitators. So what you end up with is this empty feeling of I've just poured my heart out and shared something very personal that I've never shared with anybody. And everyone just looks at me stone cold without expression. And I don't get the warm hug I need or the feedback or the I don't no one's resonating with the things I'm saying. That's got to be a terrible feeling. Or as Don was saying, she didn't feel like she could be herself because why would you go into a room that you don't know these people and you hear their little spiel and there's no engagement? Right. So you wouldn't feel like you could be very, you know, you can't be reciprocal when. It, it wasn't comfortable. It was un, very uncomfortable because I don't know. So there, you're uncomfortable, you don't know anybody, you feel like people are passing judgment. From day one here, I was comfortable. Before I even, after I talked to you guys and, and then I, I jumped on one of the call, it was comfortable. It was people were just open and honest and truthful and gave you honest feedback and you were able to say things to them. And that's, how, you know, so I think it, I think that's what the families need, not to be told, you know, these are the three C's of Al-Anon and, you know, you can't control it, you can't change it. But I did. I controlled it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another person in our Echoes group that's been on the podcast, Jane, said that she kind of felt the same way, that it was, she was able to contain it at least. It may not have been total control, but contain it somewhat. And so then to be told like, no, you know, but I'm still just blown away the fact that here you are three days in and you're the, you're the person they're going to focus on, not Len, not the alcoholic, but you and your codependency and, and how that's driven his alcoholism. Wouldn't it be, you know, we should be focusing on the alcoholic right now. And that was my, that was my, I was like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, and then to look at him and him tell me, oh, everything's great. I'm good. I barely had even with any withdrawals when I was hoping he was like in a corner crying somewhere. Um, and she's like jabbing me, jabbing me, jabbing me. I mean, I really, it was a horrible 28 days. Um, you're, you're a very strong and confident person. Did that did that create doubt in your mind about whether or not he truly was an alcoholic? Uh, was this all just were you making it up in your head? Were you creating the problems? Did 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 those kind of thoughts circulate for you? So they did, and, and uh, they they crept in there because for years, my father, who was a recovering alcoholic, kept telling me. You don't have to worry about him. He's not an alcoholic. An alcoholic cannot leave a half a beer on the table and go to bed. An alcoholic can't do this and that. You don't have to worry about it. When I saw other things happening, you know, as time went on, I'm like, 
no, I do have to worry. This is a problem. I have to worry. And, you know, so I had my dad's voice in my head going, maybe he's not. I had the counselor saying, you know, this could be mental illness and not alcoholism. This could, you know, he could have personality disorder. He could have bipolar. He Like trying to find something else to blame, including me. And so it did create a lot of doubt. And like, did I jump the gun? Was I going through my own little midlife crisis where I just didn't want to be married anymore? So I just kicked him out. I mean, there were all these things that came up. One of the things that happened in one of our family meetings was both of my kids told him, we're very angry at you because you made mom feel like she was crazy. Because they saw it. You know, and they, they're old, you know, my kids are older. So they, and they saw what was going on and they saw the struggle I was going through. Like, did I make this up? Is he an alcoholic? It, it always just blows my mind when, when uh, mental health professionals, because that's not uncommon, that they're looking for something else when the, the truth is hiding right there in plain sight, the alcohol. Even, even if that's not to say that, uh, that people don't have co-occurring issues or that sometimes it is, there is some other mental health issue other than addiction. But, you know, as hard as it was to quit drinking, I still think the easiest solution when alcohol is involved is to remove the alcohol, isn't it? Right. And, and then they'll see what we've got going on. So when we yeah. get this denial, like, oh, you know, they've talked to me about their drinking patterns. Clearly, they're not an alcoholic. Well, first of all, every alcoholic I've ever met lies about their drinking patterns. Right. So he, he told you how much he was drinking, triple that, and then you're probably close <laughs> to something accurate. Right. Um, but why would, like, it's, it, it'd be like, you know, I've got this, this red infection on my hand. Um, and there happens to be a little sliver of wood in the middle of it, but I don't think it's the splinter that's the problem. There's, you know, it's clearly I've got some kind of um, psoriasis. You know, why wouldn't you pull the splinter out first? Why right. wouldn't you take the alcohol away and then see how Especially the person's operating? Rehab facility. Yeah, it's and this it's, was a yes, a rehab facility, an that's inpatient rehab facility. You know, and and so I think based on who his counselor was. I think there were a lot of missed opportunities in that 28 days mm. to get down to the nitty gritty of why is he an alcoholic? What were those childhood traumas? None of that was discussed while he was there. Mm. Not, none of those things, you know, because, and like I said, very openly, I went into this marriage. I knew what his background was. I knew I knew there was a bio mom. I knew there was an adopted fit. You know, I knew all these things. Um, and he was able to, I guess, contain himself and take care of himself for a long time until he just crossed over the line. You know, speaking of childhood and speaking of family, I know just from getting to know you how important family is to you. And, and you, you've alluded to this, but you grew up dealing with alcoholism in the family as well. So, I mean, I feel like your love of your family, your protection of your family is very strong. What, what was it about when he made, went to rehab that made you make the decision that, like you just said, he's crossed this line and I, 
we are separated now. I can't let him back in the house. Um, was that a protection of your boys, of your of your kids? Um, was was that 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 family instinct that made you you decide to go there? Yeah, I mean, it was it was protecting my kids. It was protect. You know, Nicholas wasn't living with me. Jacob was. It was protecting Jacob, who for at least a year and a half was like he would physically tell his father to get the hell out of the house. You need to leave. It was protecting him and it was protecting me. It was protecting me from the, like going down this road over and over and over and over. Um, And I put this wall up and I mean, it's really hard to get that wall down. It's very hard to get that wall down. Probably because of the way my mom handled my dad. I mean, it took a long time for her to kick him out, to divorce him. Um, She never remarried. She never, he really didn't remarry. I mean, for a year he remarried some woman, but it was like, they just couldn't live together. But we did all family things together. We, you know. And he did get sober. So I have the hope that, you know, statistics tell me different. Statistics tell me relapses are going to happen. Chances of us succeeding are, are not really good. But my dad did it. And my dad was horrible. My dad was a horrible alcoholic. Um, so I have hope. I, I have hope for us. It's just I have a lot of rules. And I don't know if he can follow my rules. Tell us a little bit about that. I have rules. He, um, I, I'm, oh, so I'm terrified of the, this whole relapse thing because I don't want to be back in that space again. I feel like I've, I have a very peaceful life now. I don't want that chaos back. Yeah. Um, you know, most recently we have realized that he's been medicating with marijuana. Um, you know, and, and the reason he's medicating is the same reason he drank alcohol. It calms him down. Okay, same thing you told me about alcohol. So I would much rather you say, hey, I got stoned last night and then I went to White Castles and I went, like out of fun, doing it for recreation. Okay, I could buy into that, but not for the same reason you were drinking. Um, so that's terrifying he's still not taking full accountability for his actions. I still catch him in lies on a regular basis. And it's funny because Len has two very specific tells. And whether it's on the phone or in person, when he's saying it, I know it's a lie. I don't even have to verify it. I just know. And you know, he needs a lot of work. He's seeing a therapist now. I am seeing a therapist. Um, we've just started researching couples therapy. You know, we're almost two years into this. You know, we're, I think we're at like that 22 month mark. Um, and I'm finding it hard because I detach so, I, I like detach so hard. It, this whole attachment thing is really hard. This reattachment mm-hmm. is very difficult. Yeah, understandably. Tell us a little bit about, I love this. I love this. The family meetings that you've done. Did, now, did this, were you, you weren't doing these before he went to rehab, right? This started after he went to rehab? 
that's, yes. So technically we did have, the three of us did three interventions prior to him going to rehab over a course of five years. Um, one, technically we didn't call. We were getting ready to say, we need to talk. And he called her intervention all on himself, which I was very odd, but it was just to pacify us so that we would get off his back. Um, so when, when um, about six months after he got out of rehab, the kids, so my, my rule at that moment was, you need to fix your relationship with the boys before you and I can even contemplate where we're gonna end up. We, we, you need to, if I'm not here, all you have are the boys. So you need to repair that, that relationship with them. So we, we decided me, to have this family. Let me, let me stop you right there. That statement right there is profound. The fact that you were concerned enough about him because all he would have was the boys if you were gone. Um, I mean, that just shows that just because you're separated, just because you were contemplating divorce and still don't know, you know what the right next move is, you still care about this guy. You're worried about what his legacy is going to be, what he's going to have um, if you're not there in the picture. That's, that's amazing. But, you know, he was, Len was a really good dad until he wasn't. Mm -hmm. He was a, he was an active participant. He very proud of his boys and, and this, this escalation of alcohol caused his boys and him to disconnect from each other. There were words said, there were things said that were painful on both sides. So I just felt it was real important before we fix us that they fix them. And if they can't, they can't 100% fix each other, at least they could start rebuilding a relationship. You know, so we had these family meetings, weekly family meetings, and I would like comb the internet and find topics. And, you know, there's a million topics and we would hit on these topics, you know, and it, you know, it was on truth and trust and just a million topics. And then um, spring came along so we put them on hold until fall because the boys have like frisbee golfing and softball and all these activities and we're in the middle of planning a wedding. Um, so we put them on hold until now. We're going to resume them again because I think the, the boys said they still have stuff they want to talk about. You know, and I think it kept one more connected with them having these meetings by not having the meetings, I could see them growing apart again. So I think it's something that I have to, we have to continue. We have to keep it going. When you were doing them on a regular basis, was everyone in, engaged? Was everyone yes. happy with them? Or did anyone resist, whether it's the boys or Len? No, no. And, and you know, nobody resisted. And I could tell... I didn't feel like I could certain things I didn't want to talk about because it was marital things. So it, it's like, well, you and I'll handle this later. Let's just keep this really focused on the boys. And that's how we did it. And then the boys turned it into, okay, let's have a meeting. Oh, but let's 45 minutes and then let's have game night. So it like turned into this family time that we used to always do that had been missing for a few years. 
And even now, like Sunday night, everyone just, you know, comes here for dinner and we play games. So we're not having these meetings, but they're, everyone's interacting and engaging. That's great. The, the meetings describing communication, um, you know, that, that's one of the things that we definitely, as we talk to people and learn their stories, definitely find that's missing. People are often afraid to engage the kids. Um, you know, we'll get the question sometimes, how should I talk to them? What should I tell them? And it sounds, you know, glib and like we're blowing them off, but the answer is always just the truth. And this comes from personal experience because as we've shared on this podcast, I didn't really think we had done much damage to our kids. Sherry knew uh, that there was a lot more that they had seen and picked up on and suffered from than I realized. And when we started talking to them, they had a lot to say. They had a lot of anger to get off their chests. And had we not engaged them, they would have just kept that bottled up and you know, even with that level of communication that we had with them, I'm still worried about all four of them and, and the impact my drinking had on them, but I couldn't imagine not talking to them and, and continuing to die. I went on a walk with my, our youngest yesterday and the topic of alcoholism came up and here we are walking down the street, we're passing other neighbors and they hear me talking to a, you know, a preteen about alcohol. Um, it kind of must've been a bizarre thing to listen to if you just get a few <laughs> seconds as you're passing someone on the sidewalk, but I just don't know any other way. And so from the very beginning, when we met you and you told us about these meetings, I got, we I got all on the edge of my seat, like, oh, let's hear about these. Because we had, you know, we had had a few, but we were like so impressed with how it was weekly, how there were topics. And then I loved how it spun off into, so let's have this hard conversation, but then let's go do something fun that's bonding and uniting. And that's where, like, even for a couple, I think that reattachment is something that needs to happen. And I felt like you were having a great example of that. Like, let's do some hard work, but then let's remember that we're a family and we, we need to have fun and love and be right. finding joy with each other. So we want to come back. We want to come back to the your your family, your your husband and your sons, but I want to take a little sidetrack here because of something that you mentioned. You talked about the fact that you initially, you know, had told your mother that she was enabling your father, and that since all of this has happened, since you've experienced alcoholism in your relationship, you apologize for that. Would you tell us a little bit about your relationship with your mom and? Like, how, ha how have things changed now that you've gone through these experiences? Um, so my mom and I, when I was younger, we were really close. And then we had, and then I turned into a rebel and then we were apart. And then I happened to have the first grandson of the family. And so now, according to my sisters, I am the golden child because I gave her her first grandkid. Um, but her and I are very close. We work together. We hang together. Um, very close. Going through this with one, she kept trying to um, compare her relationship with my dad to my relationship with Len. My dad was abusive. My dad was a cheater. My dad was all these things. Len was not. Yes, emotionally okay yes and and all that but not physically I had a hard time 
like I got to the point where I was like, mom, we're, we're nothing alike. Our relationships were nothing alike. Yo, I didn't have three small kids. I didn't, I had a, I had a backup plan. I had a place to go. I had things, you know, I was able to step away. And, um, but I did after this whole codependent, prodependent thing going on lately, I called her and I'm like, listen, I, I'm sorry. I know we have called you an enabler for the past 40 years. I know what we've done. You're, you were just doing what you could do. You were doing the best you knew how. And I know my mother, her whole world revolves around her daughters and their children. She could care less whether their son-in-law is involved. She, it's, Life is about her daughters and her grandkids, period. And she did the best she could. I mean, so I apologized. And she's like, you know, I, I, I only worry about you guys. I only do these things because I care. It's like, I know, but when you're, when you're not sleeping because you're worried that my nephew's going to go to Italy for five and a half months to study abroad. She's not sleeping because she's worried something's going to happen. Mom, the kids are growing up. They're gonna expand out. They're gonna do things. Don't worry so much. You have to sleep. You can't not sleep because your grandson's going to Italy to, to school. Did, so, did she have an initial, like, immediate reaction when you when you apologized for calling her an enabler, or, or, or was that it? Did she just no, I, no. I think you know you could hear in her voice the relief that I. I'm not viewing her as an enabler anymore because she married an alcoholic. Her dad was an alcoholic. Her brother was a drug addict. You know, we're dealing with my sister who has this um, back surgery opioid thing going on that she they're, they're transitioning her off of them now. So she's got this whole withdrawal thing going. But my mom seems to gravitate towards that type of person. Um, but they're her family. Like... It's not somebody who's not her family, you know, like it's not a stranger. It's her daughter. It's her husband. It's her brother. It's her father. You know, how else is she supposed to react, but to be helpful? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a natural instinct. And when we, when we bludgeon people with the codependent word, um, we, take out of consideration the fact that it's a it's a loving natural instinct and it's actually a an admirable quality to care about your family and and want the best for them um yeah i, I i'm so glad to hear about um not just how close you've you have mostly always been with your mom but that you had that experience to 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 tell her that you understand that's really cool really cool so you're you're still you're separated from your husband, yes. um, you you talked about some of the rules that you have, and you know the the marijuana use. It, you know, in my humble opinion, that's just transference of uh, addiction from one substance to another. Yes, I understand that he uses it to calm down and to relax, but we also have to learn how to naturally cope and calm down and relax. That, you know, that's, that's what breaking the addiction is all about learning how to do that without the substance. And so when you just switch substances, I can see why you're worried about that. I would be very worried about that. 
as well. But one of the things that you mentioned that I'm, I'm hoping you can share a little bit more on is, you know, I know that you struggle with forgiveness. And I think that the struggle for forgiveness comes from, you've shared with us that, that he's still kind of in victim mode. Um, so taking accountability for what happened is something that he's not comfortable with. Can you, can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, he, you know, we have, just like the boys and, and us have these family meetings, he and I have, have meetings. I try not to do it like, which we're trying like every other week or just when it strikes us to have it. And what I have found is anytime I bring up anything, you know, where I'm trying to work through resentments or I'm trying to work through something, um, his response is, how long am I going to have to pay for this? I don't want to spend the rest of my life with this stuff getting thrown in my face. Am I not allowed to have joy as well? And my response, you know, I, I'm like, I have to work through this with you. I have to, I think I need, I don't know what I need. I think I need him maybe to ask for forgiveness or, you know, I've read all those, the five love languages, when sorry isn't enough. Um, and maybe that's what I need. I need him to ask for forgiveness in order for me to move forward. Although I, I didn't grow up knowing how to forgive. So could I forgive him? I could. I'm working, I'm getting there. But I still think we need to work through all these resentments and issues because I don't want to live the rest of my life rehashing the past either you know but those those triggers are going to happen those those memories are going to creep in because even though you forgive it doesn't mean you're like i don't have a men in black zapper to like wash away all the past memories you know so he he plays victim he blames me he tells me that my coffee is an addiction, so I need to get over myself. No. Newly found. I'm probably ADD and can self-diagnose myself because I drink more than six cups of coffee a day. Um, but it's like he's it's still that blame game. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping, and I don't know if he'll get it through individual counseling until we do marriage counseling where he's actually called on the carpet on these things. And then he can go back to his counselor and discuss them with her because I don't know, I don't know how I'm portrayed in his counseling meetings. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if he, if he's able to be that honest with himself. Well, I think that's it right there. I think you just hit the nail on the head. As it relates to our experience anyway, and, and I, I think the marijuana thing, I don't, I don't mean to, to keep harping on that, but what, what had to happen for me is I had to go through a, a good long period of sobriety to the point where my alcoholic behaviors weren't around anymore. So I could see I'm not, for instance, I'm not suppressing wanting to say mean things to Sherry. Uh, I just don't want to say mean things to Sherry. Right. So, so I'm not holding back this alcoholic instinct anymore because it faded away. And then I was able to separate 
the, the permanently sober me from the alcoholic me and say, oh, that person that I used to be, that was kind of a bad person. That guy did bad things. And then when we did the resentment processing, we could talk about those almost as though there was a third person that used to be in the relationship that did these bad things and that person's gone. And that allowed me to do it without that shame and guilt. I think, I think when, when, whenever I hear somebody saying, you know, how long am I going to have to hear about this? Are we going to talk about the things I did for the rest of my life? That person is still carrying the shame for the things that they did. And until you can separate and say, oh, that's the person that I used to be. I'm not that person anymore. Boy, does this feel, you know, individually good. I feel good myself because I don't behave that way anymore. So if anyone wants to talk about how I used to behave, you know, have at it. It doesn't hurt me. And, and I, I think that's the piece that's missing. And I don't know how you ever get there if you're continuing to self-medicate. You're just preventing yourself from going to that place of enlightenment and kind of figuring it out. Does that, does that make sense, Don? It does. And so and that's why I'm, and not to be controlling. I, I'm trying not to be controlling about this because he's got to do his own work, just like I've done my own work. Um, but if we do start marriage counseling, maybe we, you know, working through resentments in front of a counselor will help him see a It's not, I have resentments. Has the list changed over the two years? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had like a notebook of resentments. Now I'm down to like a page and a half because they, you know, going through them, you realize this is all really the same thing. Like this is all about the same thing. This is so. I, so it's not like I'm going to say, you know, on September 13th of 2017, you did this. That's not what it's about. It's about his actions and non-actions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think the other thing that's interesting that has happened in our relationship is even as we've done we've done the best we can on resentment processing that still continues to some extent. It's funny the things, the, the specific stories or uh, just pain points that Sherry con not continues to bring up. But if, if like the situation comes around to one of them, they pop back up to the surface. It, it's what I'm trying to say is it's almost like there's a natural, uh, you know, culling of what are the ones that are really important and still sticking with me. And because there are some that you can just let fade away yes. without necessarily, because there'll be things and I, I wish I could think of an example right now, but Sherry will be like, yeah, that would be helpful. <laughs> but Sherry will be like, you know, clearly this is still uh, a trigger for you. Um, and can you think of any triggers, Sherry? Existing triggers? Um, no. You're, you're perfect now. That's good. Yeah, Congratulations. <laughs> No, but anyway, I don't have anything specific, but it is amazing. Like there are some that even though we've talked about, like if a situation was similar or words were said that were similar, or if I think about like an instance that happened, that was very painful, it still does trigger me and makes me sensitive and it makes me a little defensive against you. I can still cry. I can have all those feelings still pop up yeah. and you know. Because there are just some things like in our life that are so painful that we'll just not get over necessarily, like that will hold yeah. place in our heart. But it's the whole forgetting thing. Like it's still there. You you can't. It's always going to be there. And you know, and and I I said really horrible things when he was drunk. 
horrible, horrible things. He was drunk. He doesn't remember them. But I know what I said. Yeah. I mean, I, I know what I said. He, if I asked him today, what was the worst thing I ever said to you? He wouldn't remember because he was so drunk. I know I said it. And I know what I said. And it was like my, my way of getting, getting him back when he was drinking. And then he would go to sleep and wake up and everything was fine. Life was good. We had a perfect life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about how the alcohol impacts both people and causes them both to say, you know, vile, mean things to each other. Uh, just because you're the one drinking doesn't mean you're the only one that's going to get driven to that point. So we definitely totally understand that and relate to it. Um, I know Sherry could give as good as she got mm-hmm. sometimes. That's not to lay any blame on her, but that's just how it works well, often. Well, and I, but I think part part of my whole forgiveness thing is I got to forgive myself for those things because mm. I carry that because they were mean. And I knew that I, I went into it knowing it was mean. I mean, the, the day after I kicked them out, I was cleaning the garage because it was a mess. And I found all these bottles of liquor, some full, some empty. And so I took them into my office and displayed them. You know, it was close to Christmas with this whole Christmas towel thing. I took a picture and I was like, I should send this to him. He could use it for a Christmas card. I mean, 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 but that's where I was. Yeah. You know, mean, mean, but in a react in reaction to being hurt. I mean, that sounds like a pain release to me more than than being mean. So I was like, and every once in a while that like picture will pop up on the phone that I took it on. And I'm just like, oh shit, I should probably get rid of that because we're so far beyond that now. You know, um, we are, we, you know, we went out the other day for dinner and we had a really great time. We took a drive, tried, we tried to find fall leaves, not so much yet, but um, we had a really good time. It's just that things trigger, you know, he'll say something or I'll say something and then boom, there's an, you know, it's like, okay, I'm ready to go home now. See you later. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're investigating couples counseling. I think one of the interesting things that you said was that you're not sure how you're being portrayed in his individual counseling meeting. And so I, I have to imagine that the couples counseling, you, you feel like, you'll be able to represent yourself and portray yourself so that he'll get yes. feedback based on the reality of what's going on. Feedback from the counselor based on the reality of what's going on, not just the picture that he might be painting. So I'm sure you've got some um, hope, hope, I guess would be the right word for, for how that's going to go. Cause, cause right now you're separated and you're not sure which direction you're going still, right? You're, no. you're kind of stuck in separation. We're stuck in separation. We've talked about it. You know, he comes back at me that the counselor, his counselor thinks that it's weird that we're still separated. I don't really think she says that. I think that's his, he, that's what he feels. And so he uses the counselor as like the counselor said, this is probably not normal. And I said, you know, I just look at him like it is what it is. And until I'm ready we're here. I mean, if you want to go now, I've already been through the worst of it. I'll be fine. 
Um, he's terrified to be alone. He's all these things, but he's still not, he's not fully honest about life. You know, I, it, you know, I don't know. I, I kind of feel, you know, he tells me his counselor approves of his marijuana use. She's an addiction counselor, <laughs> but addiction counselor is going to approve of marijuana use. Uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me from some of the stories we've heard is it is it unbelievably ludicrous absolutely but we've heard stories you know of, of people that have situations like that oh. yeah so um you know and and the people he lives with who he's not in the sober living place anymore but his roommate is um very active in aa like eight years sober his girlfriend, like seven years sober. So they have house meetings and all this stuff. And he told me that they approved of it as well. And I just, you know, my kids are just like, whatever, mom, it's pot. And I'm like, it'd be whatever it's pot if it was for fun, recreational, no big deal use, just like his alcohol would have been fine if it was just like, whatever if it didn't turn into a problem where it caused chaos. I said, it's, it's different here. It's different. He's replacing alcohol. He's replacing his alcohol use with pot. That's how I feel. And I'm not willing to, I'm not wavering on my, my boundaries there. It, if that's going to continue, then we will continue to live in separate houses. We, we could do a whole nother podcast episode on transference from alcohol to marijuana. One of the reasons that I think you so commonly hear people, medical professionals, and just society in general say, oh, it's no big deal. It's just pot. It's just because of the outward uh, reaction, right? When we drink, often people like me turn angry and depressed and mean. When we smoke pot, we turn into couch potatoes who want to eat too much and you know, we're, we're lethargic as opposed to aggressive. And so people take that outward expression of what the drug is doing to them and say, oh, it's fine. They ignore the fact that internally, neurologically, it's doing the same thing that the alcohol was doing. Right. It's hijacking the neurotransmitters. Right. It's preventing healing. And so, I mean, until we can get past that as a society and partially as a medical professional, for profession, because I think there's a lot of medical professionals that that will say that, oh, it's just a little, it's good for anxiety. It's, it's just a little weed. How can that hurt? I just, I just, I'm so floored by it with the fact, like you said, it could be a whole different podcast, but I'm just floored by the fact because I, I always got really bad hangover. So I enjoyed marijuana before Matt and I really started getting together. And I mean, I just, you know, like I tell my teens and young adult kids, they're like, oh, it's just pot mom. Like if they're somebody smoking it at the in their car at the trailhead before or after a hike. And I'm like, yeah, but that person's still going to get behind the car or behind the wheel. Their reaction time is slower. It, to me, it's a lead in drug. You can become dependent on it. Yes. You know, like you aren't fully in control of your body, your mind, your brain. And I just saw too many of my friends like become, you know, stoners and just do nothing right. with their lives. So I, I, I hate it now. Like yeah. and it'd be mad if Aaron like wrecked them once or twice that <laughs> you yeah, smoked it. So because it was illegal. So I think that was probably 
screaming through your brain. But it's illegal, it is illegal, it is illegal. Yes, not as bad as the one time I tried mushrooms and I hid in a a bush outside of McDonald's drive-thru for like six hours. My friends couldn't see me. So yeah, I yeah, I definitely was an alcohol guy. Yeah, but I just I can I just like want to vomit and then throat punch somebody when they say, oh, it's a good thing to do that instead of you know X, Y, and Z or alcohol. You know, how is it any different? You know, like we had to make my sister stop driving because she was taking all this, this Norco and this Valium and all these things for her pain and getting behind the wheel of her car. And it's like, do you understand if you hit somebody, you are driving impaired, you will go to jail. And we finally talked her doctor into taking her driver. Like you cannot drive. And she's like, you know, I always feel like you're driving so fast when we're driving and I'm like doing the speed limit. I'm like, cause you're stoned. Oh my goodness. Oh, and she I was driving that. like that. Yeah. And, and that is driving under the speed limit and really slow, slow reaction time. That is still just as bad, you know? Yes. So yes. I, I just, I don't blame you for not letting go of that boundary and making that a hard boundary. That's a super hard it. one. because he's not sober no and that's what I try to tell him in my opinion you are not sober yeah yeah Don before we started recording we talked about whether we were going to use your real first name or not we talked about whether or not we might mention your husband's name and often when we do these podcast recordings with a guest we do change the the name of the guests that we're talking to for their perfect protection or to protect their spouse. And we almost never mention the name of the spouse. And you very, you, you weren't angry. You weren't defiant. You were just matter of fact. You said, I don't need anyone's permission. This is my story. And I'm going to talk about it. That, I mean, that piece of you is one of the most just admirable. And one of the things that I love the most about you, that, that independence. I'm wondering, does that, is that something that you've gained in these couple of years um, while your husband's been in recovery and you've been doing your own recovery work? Because I know you've done a ton of work. And um, is that independence that you've gained, it's got to feel great. Is that one of the things that you're afraid of losing if you, um, if you end the separation? Is, is that one of the things that's keeping you stuck? You don't want to lose that independence. I do feel like that's a big part of it um, because prior to, I did do a lot of work. I used to care what everybody thought. You know, I used to, I don't really, you know, it is what it is. If you can't handle it, then there's the door. Um, I, I don't want to lose that part of me again. I didn't start our relationship I started our relationship being very independent. Always, I've been very independent. As the really, as we progressed, we became a team that was dependent on each other. You know, if he got home first, he would start dinner. If I got home first, I would start dinner. Whoever threw the clothes in, whoever was, we ran the vacuum cleaner. Like we did everything together. So I feel like that it caused this like team where. I, I lost my independence. I, you know, I was made, I, I, 
he made me feel guilty when I would excuse myself to you know come into my office and get some work done because I've worked from home almost my whole life. So I I, I felt like I lost that. You know, um, it it was I was badgered when I had to travel for work. I was, you know, here I we were no longer a team because I had to send my my youngest to my sisters or my dads or whatever when I was traveling because he didn't want to be home with his dad because his dad really drank a lot when I was gone. So all these so now I feel like I found myself again. You know, I feel like this is me again. I am me again. And I like my independence and I like I like my peaceful life. I I drama, just check it at the door when you walk in, leave it outside. I don't want any part of it. I don't want drama with my sisters. I don't want drama with my my kids. There's no need for it. And I feel sometimes there's still drama when it's him and me together. You know, I, I feel like there's, we're not done working on ourselves. There's still more work to be done. I do know I liked being a team with him. We were a good team when we were a good team. Um, so if we could find our way back, that's fine. If we don't find our way back, I will be fine. That's such a powerful statement. I'm so glad you said that. That I mean, I, I think that our listeners, that is the goal to strive for, the statement that you just made. If we find our way back, we'll be fine. If we don't, I'll be fine as well. Because I think only when you're in that healthy independent state can you bring the the tools to the relationship to create a healthy relationship. You both have to be healthy as independents. That certainly was our experience. Our our relationship recovery work, Sherry and I, was unsuccessful until she Sherry did her own work. You know, I was obviously as the drinker, everyone the spotlight's on you. It's obvious that you need recovery and you need to do that work. And so I was doing my stuff and then we started trying to fix the relationship. And then it was only when Sherry found a therapist and worked on herself that she could rise to that level of, of kind of independence and confidence. And so that the relationship work was starting to take hold. And so the way you just said that, uh, if we get back together and we reform the team, I'll be fine. And if we don't, I'll be fine with that too. I think that's got to be the goal of any loved one in recovery to work toward that before you determine the results of the relationship. Well, and I, and I know not everybody can, not everybody's in a position, not everybody is ready to do like that complete separation like I did from the get-go. Right. But it wasn't like I woke up one morning and said, you know, get out. It would. There was there were years of building up to this that caused me to have that reaction, you know. And certain people in my family are like, "You need more time. You need more time. You need more time." And then I was having a conversation with my sister the other day, and she's like, "We're not quitters. I don't feel like our goal is to quit, chalk it up as a, as thirty years of experience and move on." like our ultimate goal should be the want to get back together and, and form whatever this new life we have, you know, based on what we know now, make a new life together, not just throwing in the towel and being like, I'm out. 
you know, I, we aren't quitters. I'm not a quitter. Um, but I, I, I have really hard boundaries with certain things and I don't see, I don't see that changing, you know, and until that changes and it may not change. I mean, he may not, he may decide not to follow those rules. That's, that's his right. That's right. Just like it's your right to have, just like it's his right to make his own decisions, how he wants to live. It's your right to have your boundaries. Right. And that, that's important that, that you be confident yeah. about that. And I'm so glad that you are. Yeah. And you're not a quitter, but you're also not going to cave. And right. And, and like you, you know, like it's, it goes back to fool me once. All right. You're not going to, I'm not going to live. And that's what I keep telling him. I'm not going to live that life again. My life, what we were living is, is my vision for my future is completely different. You know, my, my next 30 is going to be a different 30, not what we were doing before. Um, and did we have great communication skills from day one? No, no, we did not. Um, I was always more of a, I, I'm a talker. He's not, you know, I'm, if I have something to say, I say it he doesn't really talk, you know? So I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to couples therapy. Good. I don't know many people that would say that. Yeah, that's That would scare the crap out of me. But you have a lot of those personalities like Matt does where it's hard to talk about, but we still have to talk about it. And I'm kind of the, I don't want to talk about it. Don't make me talk about it. So- <laughs> I love that. I look forward to therapy. We 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 came up with because I uh, therapy's funny, you know, and and sometimes they and I've been told they look at like whoever's the weaker one of the two, they kind of badger that one. And I'm and I told him straight, if you're uncomfortable with who we choose, we'll find another one until we're both comfortable with who we're talking to, because I. I kind of saw it with that therapist from his rehab, how she zoned in on creating my problem instead of trying to help us navigate his issues. So we have to find someone where, you know, so his therapist recommended one, my therapist recommended one. We're going to start there and then we'll expand, you know, we'll see where it goes. But well, he's willing you understand the importance of being comfortable because of some of your own experiences, not only the negative with that first counselor, but back to something you said early on when we first started talking, you talked about how you, I don't think you use these exact words, but you, you basically found your people when you joined Echoes of Recovery. Yes. You found people that listened and understood. And I just want to make sure you understand that what you have gotten from Echoes, you have more than given back uh, time and time over because the the way you share your willingness your vulnerability your honesty and even above and beyond that the success that you have achieved in your situation back to that point that you just made about you know you'll be fine no matter what that success getting there is so hard and I just I hope that you're proud of yourself not only for your contribution to echoes of recovery but for just where you are in life, you've protected your boys, you've protected yourself, and you're going to be fine no matter what. That, that's the goal. You, 
you are a success story. Regardless of what happens with the marriage, you are 100% a success story. I hope you know that. I, I felt like my marriage failing made me a failure, but it, it, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. If it, it doesn't, I, I, can't it just doesn't I've done a lot of work you have you've worked hard and it's paid off and you're a remarkable person Don we are blessed to have you in our lives and we thank you for coming on and spending some time with us on the intoxicated podcast thank you for having me and I couldn't have done it without your group (laughs) we love you Don Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.